Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. If you enjoy the teachings from Beth Emanuel, do us a favor and share the links with your friends. Like us on Facebook and tell your friends about the things you are learning at Beth Emanuel. Help us grow the message. In the previous chapter of the book of Ephesians, Paul spoke about walking in a manner worthy of our calling as disciples. He warned the Ephesian disciples that they must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, Ephesians 4.17. In chapter 5, he continues this discourse with practical instructions that distinguish between Israel and the idolatrous world of the nations from which the Ephesian disciples have come. If the Gentile disciples are to walk in a manner worthy of their calling, they must no longer live like idolaters. Paul refers to the people of the world and the idolatrous nations as the sons of disobedience and the children of darkness. He refers to the holy ones, saints of Israel, and to the disciples of Yeshua as the children of God and the children of light. The idolatrous world of Paul's day corresponds to the secular world of today. They aren't that different. The darkness of the idolatrous world and the darkness of the secular world are the same darkness, ignorance of God. The children of God, on the other hand, walk in the light of God's revelation. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Yeshua says that if we want to be considered sons and daughters of our Father in heaven, we should imitate God in the way that we treat others. That means walking in love. The imitation of God is the meaning of the English word godliness. The Torah refers to it as walking in God's ways. In the Torah, Moses says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? Deuteronomy 10.12 The sages rightly ask, What does it mean to walk in all his ways? How can a human being be expected to walk in the ways of the Almighty? The explanation is that it means to imitate God, that is, to walk in godliness. Just as he clothes the naked, as it is written in Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them, so too should you also clothe the naked. The Holy One, blessed be he, visited the sick, as it is written in Genesis 18.1, now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was still recovering from his circumcision so too should you also visit the sick. The Holy One, blessed be he, comforted mourners, as it is written in Genesis 25.11, after the death of Abraham, God blessed his son Isaac. So too should you also comfort mourners. The Holy One, blessed be he, buried the dead, as it is written in Deuteronomy 34.6, and he buried him in the valley, in the land of Moab. So too should you also bury the dead? Talmud, Sota, 14a. In Ephesians 5.1, where Paul tells his readers to imitate God as beloved children, 
He specifically refers to forgiving each other for shortcomings and sins. He says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in the Messiah forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Ephesians 4.32-5.1 through 5, verse 1. When I find it difficult to forgive my debtors and those who have transgressed against me, I need to remember that I rely upon God's forgiveness for my own sins and shortcomings in Messiah. And if I desire God's forgiveness, it is incumbent upon me to forgive others. That is what it says in Midrash Sifre regarding the mitzvah of walking in the ways of God. Just as the Holy One, blessed be He, is called merciful, so you should be merciful. Just as He is called gracious, so you should be gracious. Just as He is called righteous, so you should be called righteous. Just as He is called devout, so you should be devout. Paul summarizes the concept with the words, walk in love. He says, walk in love as the Messiah loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There is no higher calling, no higher mitzvah, no higher form of godliness than to treat our fellow human beings with love. Yeshua says, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his brother. And he models the principle of sacrificial and selfless love for others in laying down his own life, as Paul says, Just as the Messiah also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. He compares the Messiah's willing death on behalf of others to a sacrifice offered up on the fires of the altar to God, which the Torah refers to as a fragrant aroma to the Lord. Likewise, in imitation of Messiah, we sacrifice our own self-interest on behalf of others as an act of love. God receives that setting aside of the will and setting aside of the self as if it was a sacrifice offered to him on his altar When we forgive others for the wrongs that they have done to us, Hashem receives that gesture as a divine act of worship on par with the sacrifices offered in the temple. This principle of walking in love summarizes the manner of conduct for a disciple of Yeshua. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, Ephesians 5.3. The apostle enjoins the disciples in Ephesus to adopt Jewish standards of conduct and piety, conforming their behavior to what is proper among the holy ones. He refers here to the wide discrepancy that existed between moral norms and standards of the Jewish world and the norms and standards of the idolatrous Gentile nations of the time. The Roman world celebrated impurity, greed, covetousness, sensuality, and sexual immorality. It was a world that celebrated personal ambition and the acquisition of power, 
It was a world dedicated to elite debaucheries, a world swimming in a sea of immorality. This was the world of Nero's Rome, a world that could still make Hollywood blush. The Jewish world, on the other hand, looked prudish by comparison because the Jewish people conducted themselves according to the biblical values of modesty, discretion, morality, marital fidelity, and the high standards of the Torah. A greater contrast between worlds can hardly be conceived. Paul refers to it as the contrast between light and darkness. Now that the Gentile disciples in Ephesus have become part of the same body with the Jewish disciples of Yeshua, they too have become saints, holy ones, set apart from the rest of the world. Therefore, it's not appropriate for them to behave like the rest of the world. For the rest of the people living in Ephesus and Asia Minor, immorality, impurity, and greed are the common everyday values. But among the disciples of Yeshua, There shouldn't even be a mention of such things, not even a suspicion of their presence. The same sharp divide should exist today between the disciples of Yeshua and the secular world. Sexual immorality, impurity, and greed should not be found among those who call themselves by our Master's holy name. A few years ago, we saw a social upheaval called the Me Too movement, It started when women began coming forward with reports of being sexually manipulated by men who occupied positions of authority over them in the workplace. No one was surprised. Many objected that it was the way of things. That's just the way the world behaves and always has behaved. The powerful take advantage of the weak. Men take advantage of women. That's the way the world has always worked. But not the people of God. The people of God are supposed to be different. That's why it was such a disappointment to to see so many prominent pastors and religious figures exposed to the world as predators and seducers. Victims came forward with reports of how their pastors and religious leaders had taken advantage of them. Immorality, impurity, and greed were being named among the so-called people of God. It was embarrassing and a Chalul Hashem. It became even more embarrassing when the people who traditionally champion family values turned against the victims and became the defenders of immorality, impurity, and greed, as if these things were men's inalienable rights. God forbid that such things should even be mentioned in association with disciples of our Master. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Ephesians 5.4 Paul contrasts the conversation of the saints with that of the people of the world. In the Midrash, the sages point out how even the conversation of the servants in Abraham's household centered on godliness, and even the lowly servants received revelations through angels. The world speaks the language of filthiness, folly, cruelty, obscenity, and crude jokes. The people of the world clutter their conversation with profanity, and their perverse sense of humor sullies both the mouth of the one who speaks and the ear of the one who hears. That's fine for the people of the world, but it's inappropriate for the people of God. 
Paul invites his readers to sanctify themselves from the nations by replacing the filthy talk, foul language, and obscenities that pass for normal conversation with words of thanksgiving and words of gratitude. With our words, we can elevate or lower both the one speaking and the one listening. One might mistakenly suppose that these rules of conduct are merely a matter of cultural difference in Jewish custom, merely meant as suggested standards of behavior. On the contrary, Paul sounds deadly serious. He warns the disciples in Ephesus that if they behave like idolaters, they will face the same fate as idolaters. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of the Messiah and God. Ephesians 5.5 Idolaters have no inheritance in the Messianic era. Neither will those who walk in their ways or imitate their culture. Paul warns the Ephesian disciples that it's not sufficient to call themselves disciples if there is no difference between them and the idolatrous world around them. Likewise for us. If we share the immorality, impurity, covetousness, consumerism, and greed that characterizes the secular world, we should expect no inheritance in the Messianic era. Many today would object and say, But surely we are saved by grace, and our sins are forgiven. Paul replies, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Many today would object and say, But surely we are saved by grace, and our sins are forgiven. Paul replies, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Ephesians 5, 6-7 We dare not persist in the ways of disobedience while expecting to receive the reward of obedience. This, the term sons of disobedience translates the biblical Hebrew idiom sons of Belial. If we partake of the pleasures, vices, and sinful indulgences enjoyed by the sons of disobedience, we can expect to also partake in the wrath God allots to the sons of Belial. Paul concedes that before they became disciples of Yeshua, the Ephesian disciples were numbered among the sons of disobedience. But that's no longer the case. For at one time you were darkness. But now, you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, Ephesians 5.8. The sectarian literature in the Dead Sea Scrolls uses this same terminology to divide the world into children of light and children of darkness. The Dead Sea Scrolls anticipate a future apocalypse and final battle between light and darkness, waged by the children of light and the children of darkness. Paul uses the terminology in a similar manner to contrast the people of God, Israel and the Gentile disciples, against the idolatrous world, the nations. Light and darkness metaphorically represent good and evil, but in this case, they also symbolize knowledge and ignorance. 
In the previous chapter, Paul characterized the idolatrous world as darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, Ephesians 4.18. Like them, the disciples in Ephesus were at one time separate from the Messiah, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, Ephesians 2.12. Through the message of the gospel, however, they have been enlightened to the revelation of the one God, the God of Israel. With that enlightenment and revelation comes responsibility. They are no longer in the darkness of ignorance and therefore must no longer live as the children of darkness do. Instead, the disciples have become light in the Lord and must henceforth walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Ephesians 5, 9 and 10. No longer living in the darkness of ignorance like their idolatrous neighbors, it now falls to the Gentile disciples of Yeshua in Ephesus to walk as the children of light, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, namely the pursuit of goodness, righteousness, and truth. Paul mixes his metaphors. The fruit of the light is all that is good and right and true. If we are children of the light, we should be bearing a harvest of goodness, righteousness, and truth. Therefore, a disciple of Yeshua asks himself or herself in every situation, is this pleasing to the Lord? Is this good? Is this right? Is this true? This is the standard by which we are to conduct ourselves. It's sort of a litmus test you can apply to your life. You can ask yourself these questions about the company you keep, the friends you are hanging out with, the places you are going, the party you are attending, the things you are doing, the things you are saying, the things upon which you spend your money, the entertainments you are watching, the things you are reading, the people who are influencing you, the movies, the music, the websites, your social media feed, and the way you interact with others. In all things, in all these situations and places, with all these people and friends, you should be asking yourself, is this good? Is this right? Is this true? Is this pleasing to the Lord? How would a former idolater from Ephesus know what is good, right, true, and pleasing to the Lord? Where can these new disciples find the meaning of goodness? Where will they find the standard of righteousness? And where will they find the revelation of truth? The same place that we will find them. In the scriptures of Israel, in the Torah of Moses, the words of the Master transmitted through the Apostles, the revelation of God to human beings. The fruit of the light is everything good, right, and true. What is the fruit of darkness? We don't really need a list. We know the fruit of darkness, and we are to have no part in it. Ephesians 5, 11-14 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, 
it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Light dispels darkness. We should not need a list of prohibited behaviors, and it shouldn't be necessary to discuss the unfruitful works of darkness, because when exposed to the light, darkness vanishes. For disciples of Yeshua, it is shameful even to speak of the things that the idolaters do in secret. Paul has in mind the vices and entertainments of the Roman world, the banquets and symposiums, the drinking halls, the flute players, the slave girls and slave boys, the orgies, the theaters, the games, the spectacles, the stadiums, the gross indulgence in immorality, and every vice. It is shameful for a disciple to even speak of such things. Such things should not be named among us. If we are of the light, it should be completely obvious that we don't participate in those activities or dabble in that world. We are of the light because the light of Messiah has shined upon us, which is to say, the revelation of God that comes through Yeshua. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and the Messiah will shine on you. Ephesians 5.14 In Ephesians 5.14, Paul quotes a short passage from an unknown source. Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and the Messiah will shine upon you. Joseph Good suggests that Paul might have been quoting from an early Rosh Hashanah liturgy regarding the sounding of the shofar. Just as the shofar of Messiah is destined to raise the dead slumbering in their tombs, likewise the shofar should awaken our slumbering souls from the coma of sin to wake up, shake off its lethargy, and repent. This corresponds to what Maimonides says about the voice of the shofar at Rosh Hashanah. It is as if the shofar is saying, Wake up, sleepers, from your sleep, and you who slumber, arise. Consider your deeds, repent, remember your maker. To those who forget the truth and are distracted by empty pursuits the entire year, to those who devote their energy to vanity and emptiness which will not benefit or save, the shofar says, Look to your souls. Improve your ways and your deeds, and let every one of you abandon his evil path and thoughts. Maimonides, Hilkot Shuva 3.4 Maimonides says, Consider your deeds, look to your souls. Paul says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Ephesians 5, 16 and 17. Paul reminds his readers that time is short. He says the days are evil, meaning that these are troubled times and the end is surely near. We don't have any time to waste. The time to repent is now. It doesn't work to plan on becoming godly sometime in the future. For the disciple of Yeshua, who knows that there is a coming judgment at which he or she must give an account before the throne of God, every minute is precious. A clever businessman carefully invests his limited resources only into merchandise that will bring him a good return. Our limited resource is our time. 
There's only so much time in a day, in a week, in a year, in a lifetime. When it runs out, it's gone. We should be making the best use of what we have left by investing it into those things that will bring the best return. And that is to understand what the will of the Lord is. Torah, mitzvot, goodness, righteousness, and truth. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 Ephesians 5.18 often gets quoted as if it is a New Testament prohibition on alcohol consumption. It's not. But neither should its warning be disregarded. It's a boundary we should be careful not to cross. If you drink at all, if alcohol is in your life at all, you are in danger. Alcohol is an addictive drug, and there's a basic rule of human biology and physiology that says if you take an addictive drug in sufficient quantity, often enough and long enough, you will get addicted. I don't need to lecture about the dangers of alcohol. Suffice to say that alcohol in any form is a dangerous drug that causes a disproportionate amount of sorrow in the world. It was no different in the Roman world. In the Roman world, the highlight of the idolatrous life was a night of alcohol-fueled revelry with all its associated indulgences. In Galatians 5, Paul lists out the associated indulgences one might anticipate while out on a bender or a night on the town in the Roman world. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5, 19-21 That's a snapshot of the Roman world, a grocery list of options for evening activities. Have things changed so much since then? The secular world has the same ambition, and more than ever, our society considers alcohol to be the elixir of life. Debauchery is the goal. Dissipation is the destination. Debauchery means overindulgence and gluttony. Dissipation is addiction and substance abuse. The Greek word asotia, which is translated here as debauchery, means wastefulness. It's the idea that you had enough wine in that wineskin to last you a week and you drank it all in one go. The life of debauchery and drunkenness is not for disciples. Alcohol should not hold sway over us as it does over the secular world. This is supposed to be one of the defining differences between us and them. If we drink as much or more than the secular world, something is wrong. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart.
Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. Our goal in life is not to get hammered and have such a good time partying that we don't remember it the next morning. Instead of a night of rowdy drinking songs and body entertainment common to the symposiums of the idolatrous world, the disciples of Yeshua are addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Master, Yeshua the Messiah. Ephesians 5, 18 through 20. With these words, Paul sought to paint a picture of an alternative world, one with a completely different set of values than the world to which the Gentiles of his day were accustomed. It's also a different world than the one to which the secular people of our day are accustomed. It's like the difference between light and dark. In the world of the children of light, our common language is supposed to be the language of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Psalms refer to the psalms of David, but the early believers also wrote their own psalms in imitation of David's psalms. The word hymns is better translated as odes. That is, a type of lyrical poem or song, popular in the day, written to celebrate some celebrity, athlete, hero, political leader, deity, or idea. The early believers wrote odes about Messiah. You can read a collection of them in the Odes of Solomon. Spiritual songs. Spiritual songs, I believe, refers to wordless melodies like the Hasidic Nigunim, which are in themselves supposed to be imbued with a portion of the spirit of prophecy. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Master Yeshua the Messiah. Ephesians 5.20 Instead of a society of people devoted to getting smashed and wallowing together in the muck of human depravity, Paul paints a picture of a community of people dedicated to exalting the Messiah and lifting one another spiritually higher. It's a community characterized by a spirit of gratitude where the watchword is thanksgiving. These people are animated with gratitude for the goodness that God has shown them through the Messiah. Their world is one of Baruch Hashem, and every occasion is an opportunity to offer a blessing to God in thanksgiving for His goodness. There's a bracha for everything. In his letter to the disciples of Colossae, Paul repeats this idyllic depiction of a community of Yeshua's disciples interacting with one another in reciting the words of the Master teaching the scriptures, encouraging one another in godliness, and delighting together in song and thanksgiving. Let the word of the Messiah dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything 
in the name of the Master Yeshua, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Colossians 3:16 and 17. These people are not like the rest of the world. What's happening here isn't normal. Disciples of Yeshua are a completely different breed of human being. Take on my yoke and learn from me and find rest for your soul.